And would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you with hearts that have been carried throughout the week and have accumulated the burdens and the challenges and the weight, Lord, of this world. And so as we come before you, we pray that you would teach us what to do so that we might be refreshed and that we might be able to stand and that we might know and once again breathe in that spirit that makes us more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. So speak to us now, I pray. And draw us close to yourself and then, Lord, orient ourselves so that we might live a life that you intended us to live from the very beginning. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Now this morning I'm going to invite you to return with me to a study that we've been going through in the book of Exodus toward the end of this spring. And and as you remember, the book of Exodus is actually really a book that contains two stories. The first of those stories being the unforgettable escape from Egypt, which is recorded in the first 12 chapters of the book and was filmed by Cecil B. DeMille starring Charlton Heston as Moses. Uh, actually, while that is an unforgettable story, our attention is on the second story, which may not be on film, but certainly is one that is most profound. It begins at chapter 13 of Exodus, and it records 40 years of desert wanderings for the children of Israel as they are living in life in what I have called the in-betwixt and between. Now, the story should have been shorter, this second story. there. The escape from Egypt was to be followed by a journey into the promised land. And it, it was a trip that should have probably only taken weeks, at the very most, months. But instead, lasted for 40 years. And you might ask yourself the question, why? 40 years. And we have a reason given to us in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, where we read, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, that was the direct highway, that was much shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. I want to pause with that thought for just a moment in order to get our bearings for the passage today. The first is that when we turn to the passage this morning in Exodus 17, we find that they in fact do face war, and they face war for the first time. And And in it, they have to learn a huge lesson from God before they can proceed with the journey. It's a lesson that God teaches with remarkable sensitivity, and he does it knowing just how vulnerable vulnerable they really are and how fragile they are at heart and fearful that his children can actually be. When you think of it, after 400 years of servitude in Egypt, They had adopted and succumbed to a national identity as slaves. All 12 tribes saw themselves as slaves. Talk about an inferiority complex. This is not the type of identity that that would embolden anyone to march into the promised land, heads held high, shoulders back, marching forward. If anything, they saw themselves as victims, not victors, with hearts so fragile that just the hint of war might easily break them. 
I, I cannot help but think that this time out of 40 years in the desert was God's way of giving them an extreme makeover <laughs> to, to the point where the full effect of those 40 years would change them from leaving Egypt as slaves to the point where they could then come across the river of Jordan under the leadership of Joshua, uh, that they would be then more than conquerors. But no, not conquerors by virtue of their own strength or their own might or their own pride, but by virtue of their relationship with God. As Paul would write of them as well as of every single one of us in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through our own strength? No, through Him who loved us. Now, I don't want to read too much into this, but this is why I chose to share these reflections from Exodus with you during this period of time. Because, face it, Ebenezer is moving from one season as a congregation into another. And I have worked with enough congregations to realize that this is a very critical moment, a crucial season of redefinition and discovery. And it has been my prayer that God's Spirit would bless you And keep you, that God would lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace all in the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. So so we turn to Exodus, and from Exodus 13 all the way then through the the journey, a a string of episodes appear where God blesses his people with, with wonderful lessons, giving them time to sink in. And sometimes it takes 40 years in a desert before lights go on and, 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 and you are able to look up into the heavens and say, oh, okay, I get it, finally, I get it. And so far, God has been teaching those lessons, the value of His presence with the pillar of the cloud and the fire. Then followed quickly by the lessons of His provision, providing water and daily bread and, and even quail meat. This morning we come to the next lesson, and it's a fundamental lesson of survival. I, would, I, I, would, I guess you would call it the power of protection that, that, that comes as the cover of prayer. So join with me as I turn to Exodus chapter 17, eight, uh, verse 8, where after about six to eight months following the actual escape from Egypt, the children of Israel find themselves in a place of real challenge. For they are confronted by the Amalekites. Now we read, the the, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim, right there in verse 8. Now I want to stop and explain the nature of this particular attack. The Amalekites were a nomadic tribe. They were loosely related to Israel. They were distant cousins, you might say. And and, and, in fact, if you go back to Genesis chapter 36, you find that the Amalekites trace their, their family line all the way back to Esau, the, the brother of Jacob, which I guess would give them the name of the children of Esau, uh, going up against the children of Israel. Talk about a family feud. By nature, they were nomads, much like the modern-day Bedouins, and, and, and as such, they were not a tremendous conventional military force. They didn't attack Israel as an army would, but in fact nipped away at them in in kind of a guerrilla action. 
And you get an idea of their strategy in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 16, where we read uh, a kind of a reflection on that attack. Remember what, what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, we read. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and they cut you off, of those who were lagging behind, because the Amalekites had no fear of God. Today we would call their actions asymmetrical warfare. I had a hard time saying that. Essentially attack, 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 and do it where your, 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 your opposition least expects it. Now you can unpack a lot from that particular verse in Deuteronomy. You get some idea of their motive. As distant cousins of Israel, I'm sure they had heard stories from their family history, the rivalry between Jacob and Esau, and how God had blessed Jacob and Esau, not so much. So when we read that they had no fear of God, it is the description of an ingrained attitude that has gone down from one generation to the next. Defiance, anger, entitlement. And you don't have to look very far to find the same thing in the Torah society that we live in today where there is little, if no, fear of God. Where people flaunt themselves as they look to the heavens and say, deal with that, God, what are you going to do about that? The attitude is of no fear of God. It has all the grace and all the appeal of a 12-year-old smoking for the first time and blowing the smoke in your face. That's all attitude. Even more, their actions were guided by a method. Their actions were guided by picking off the weak and the weary, looking for them, and then taking them out. When we read in Exodus chapter 17 that they attacked the Israelites, it was almost at the level of terrorism. They cut off those who lagged behind, we read. Almost like predators, silhouettes on the ridges, scouting out the weak and the weary, waiting for a moment to attack. Most of us are probably familiar with such challenges, aren't we? Think of you in your weakest moment where you are most weary. Maybe it's in that quiet moment at night before you go to sleep and suddenly find yourself attacked by dark fears and deep worries. They've only been lurking on the fringes of your consciousness during the day, looking for for that right moment to attack, and they find it right as you become weary. Game on. Or maybe it is when you are at the place of your greatest vulnerability where you are unable to defend yourself. Whatever, you know what it's like to to have something or someone able to exploit you in your moment of weakness. So back to Exodus chapter 17 and verse 9, the time has come to face the challenge head on. Moses says to Joshua, choose some of your men, go out and fight the Amalekites. It is go time. Game on. We cannot continue to get chipped away thinking that this will stop. It won't and it will get worse. So in verse 9, Moses says, Joshua, go and fight and tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with a staff of God in my hands. The Amalekites... They haven't been fighting in a conventional war, but now neither will the children of God. This battle will not be fought using military tactics alone, or, and I might add, the battles that you and I face with our hidden fears, darkest worries, worries, and personal threats cannot be fought 
by conventional means alone either. It may be fine for you to be able to manage your fears, to battle your demons on the counselor's couch or or to take some prescription drug, but while you fight, there is something more that will, in fact, make all of the difference. Moses says to Joshua, go and fight, and while you do, I will go get God. And after all, that is where the real battle is fought. Look at verse 10. Joshua goes out and he does what he's been ordered to do. But the focus of the battle and the lesson of this battle isn't Joshua. It's Moses. We have no record of what Joshua did. Just that he was faithful and obedient to orders. But what we do have a clear picture of is what happens with Moses as he goes to God. And when we read from verses 13 on, we find that it is when you go to God that the battle is won. Look at verse 13. Moses and Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. Now, now for just a moment, I want to spotlight this verse and, and look at the posture that, that we see Uh, for going to God. It's something that we call prayer. (laughs) This is the instrument by by the way in which we go to God. And if you had any questions as to the focus of this message, let me be clear about it right now. It's all about prayer. Now, some scholars will look at this verse and and they scratch their heads. You see, in ancient warfare, it was true that generals would stand on the hilltops so that their troops would see them and then would raise their banners in, in, in such a way as to issue orders and direct movements. That was before walkie-talkies, I guess. Uh, and some think that that's what Moses was doing here, raising his arms as a signal to attack and then lowering them as a signal to retreat. But there's no indication that Joshua is paying any attention to Moses at all during this venture. The best explanation for the action here is that Moses was in prayer, and he was focusing on God. And at least five times in the book of Exodus, we find that Moses lifts his hand in such obedience to God as a matter of prayer and of power. It was a symbolic stance that embodied a direct communication with God. It was a posture that we find described in Psalm 63 that punctuates prayer. There we read, I will praise you, my God, as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. The staff in the hands of Moses just adds to this as an exercise of faith. And a choice reminder that while God has blessed in the past, he's going to do it in a wonderful way right here and right now in the present. So what we have with Moses is a picture of prayer. Now, I don't want to get too hung up on the physical postures of prayer here. I have been in places where people have been taught that the only way to pray is with uplifted hands. The fact is, the Bible describes any number of postures from prayer, from lying prostrate on the ground to kneeling with the head low bowed, and even to dancing as a posture of prayer. It's not so much the posture of your body that really matters as it is the focus of your soul. Where out of, the, out of your heart you are determined to say, I am yours, O oh God. I am abandoned to you. And the battle is in your hands. 
I am totally dependent upon you. Have you learned that lesson in prayer for yourself? Knowing that God is your first, last, and final hope? It's not a matter of ritual or posture. It's a matter of heart. Some time ago, I read a poem out of the Deep South that made it oh so plain. It goes like this. The proper way for a man to pray, said Deacon Lemuel Keys, and the only proper attitude is down upon your knees. No, I, I should say that the way to pray, said Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing straight with outstretched arms and wrapped in upturned eyes. No, 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 said Elder Snow, such posture is too proud. A man should pray with eyes fast closed and head contritely bowed. It seems to me his hands should be austerely clasped in front with both thumbs pointing to the ground, said Reverend Dr. Blunt. I don't know how to do that. Last year I fell in Hitchkin's well, head first, said Cyrus Brown, with both my heels a-sticking up and my head a-pointing down. And I made a prayer right then and there, the best prayer I ever said, the prayingest prayer I ever prayed, was a-standing on my head. Well, Moses may not have been a standing on his head. He was a standing on a hill. But trust me, he was praying the praying as prayer that he had ever prayed. And as long as he was praying, God's people were winning. But we read in verse 12 that, that even his discipline of prayer tired him out. And when he tired, his friends stepped in. You see it right there in verse 12 and 13. They, they came, they steadied his arms in order to lift the staff high on high. And as I studied this passage, I came across a fascinating thing here. In the Hebrew, the, the word to steady is the word amina. Does that sound familiar to you? The word in Hebrew, steady, is amina. And this Hebrew word is directly related to the word that we say in our prayers, amen. There's a steadiness to it all. And and here Aaron and her are simply adding their amens to Moses as he holds up his hands and as he prays. What a beautiful picture of supportive prayer and the way in which we engage with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. They don't take over for Moses. They don't grab the staff for themselves, and they don't get in his way. They simply join him and support him as he carries a burden that is all his to bear. And they steady him as he prays. And in that steadiness and with that amen, the battle is won. And when this is all over, the Lord says, write this down. Make it a lesson to be remembered by Joshua as a future general and by God's people at large, which, may I be so bold as to say, includes you and me and all of us within this sanctuary right now. And so in verse 15, Moses builds an altar, and with it he adds a name for every single one of us to remember when we call upon the Lord. The Lord is my banner. The word banner, Nisi, Jehovah Nisi, the word banner means to be raised up above all other things, to be placed up upon high. And I would suggest that this is the crucial lesson that each one of us needs to learn if we are going to get about in life. 
the Lord is to be lifted up on high. When our vision grows dim, lift up his name on high. When we find ourselves harassed to the point of distraction, lift up his name on high. When we find ourselves driven to defeat, ready to surrender, lift up his name on high. There are times when each of us are tempted to believe that we are about to be lost, overwhelmed, and that we are too weak to stand. Maybe some of you have trusted in someone who has, in fact, abandoned you and has hurt you and deeply and walked out of your life or deserted you and leaving left you all alone to face the darkness. Or maybe there's a sin, a habit that has chained you, surrounded you in a prison with walls so high you cannot see any hope of escape. Lift up His name on high. Climb the hill. Step up to the altar. Raise your hands and declare the the truth that the Lord is on His throne. He is high and exalted and He is there for you. As Paul wrote in Romans, in all these things, then you are more than a conqueror through him who loves you even now. And so we pray. And so with our prayers, we lift each other up in pray, prayer. And, and there is that resonance of the amen in the steadiness we find. As I close in prayer, let me share... A simple prayer that comes from a collection of Puritan prayers that were gathered together in the 1600s. It's called the Peril Prayer. And and I've learned to, to pray and love it as I lift the name of the Lord on high in each and every dark moment of life. It goes this way. Would you pray with me? Sovereign commander of the universe, I am sadly harassed by doubts, fears, and unbelief in a felt spiritual darkness. My heart is full of fear and disquieted by the presence of evil, and I cannot seem to find my faith. My heavenly pilot has disappeared, and I have lost my hold on the rock of ages. I sink in deep mire beneath storms and waves in horror and distress unutterable. Help me, O Lord, to throw myself absolutely and wholly on Thee, for better, for worse, without comfort, and and, and all but hopeless. Give me a peace of soul, confidence, enlargement of mind, morning joy that comes after night heaviness. Water my soul richly with divine blessings. Grant that I might welcome thy humbling in private so that I might enjoy you in public. Give me a mountaintop as high as the valley has been low. Your grace can melt the worst sinner, and I am as vile as he, yet you have made me a monument of mercy and a trophy of redeeming power, and in my distress, let me not forget this. All wise and knowing God, thy never-failing providence orders every event. It sweetens every fear. It reveals enemies' uh, presence lurking in seeming good. It brings real good out of seeming evil. It makes unsatisfactory what I set my heart upon to show me what short-sighted creature I really am and, and to teach me to live by faith upon your blessed self. Out of my sorrow and night, give me the name of your child. That precious name I might take for my own, 
that I am your own, satisfied with favor, and help me to love you as your child and to walk worthy of my heavenly pedigree. This I pray in your powerful and wonderful name, and in praying, lift your name on high. Amen.